God, as we continue to wrap our minds around this letter that your servant Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, would you give us spiritual eyes today? Love that prayer, Jesus, that Melissa led us in today just from start to finish, that you would open the eyes of our heart, that before we shine your word around, that you would teach us to live it. And Holy Spirit, that you would breathe new life in us today. That's our prayer and our invitation to you. In the name of Christ, God's people together said, amen. My grandfather told me a story years ago, and as stories go that grandfathers tell, I'm not sure if it's true or not, but I'm going to share it with you anyway as if it is, because he told me as if it was. He told a story of a young man who was a freshman at university in Tennessee, and he used to go out hunting on the weekend with his friends. And one particular weekend, they were hunting out in the country, and the truck that they were driving ran out of gas. So he said, you know what, let's just uh, roll back a couple miles, we'll walk back. There's a farmhouse that I saw back there, maybe we could use a phone, maybe they've got a gas can or something. So knock, knock, knock on the door, a woman comes to the door and answers and says, how can I help you? And they say, well, look, we, we ran out of gas a couple miles up the road. We're hunting out here, and, and, and we need some help. Can we use a phone, or can we uh, get some gas from you? Do you have a gas can? She says, you know what? In fact, I do. Let's go out into the farmhouse. There's a gas can out there. I'll give it to you. You can fill up your car with gas and you know, drive into town, get it, and just bring the gas can back when you're done. And these boys say, that sounds great. So they get into the farmhouse, and they see a gas can sitting there on the ground, but the other thing that they see is kind of this big something covered in a tarp and a blanket. And so this young man who was in university as a freshman says, hey, what's underneath the tarp? And the woman said, well, it's a motorcycle. And he says, well, can I see it? And she says, well, sure you can. So takes the tarp off, and underneath is a very, very old, very, very beat up, very, very uh, you know, just kind of dilapidated and rusted and all whatever else, Harley-Davidson motorcycle. And the young man says, you know what, uh, I think I can fix this. Like, I think I can get it running again, and, you know, it's never going to look right on the outside, but I think I can do something with it. Uh, I'll give you a couple hundred bucks for it. The woman says, sold, you can have it. Give you a couple hundred bucks. They come back with the truck, get the motorcycle, take it home. Next day, he takes it to a mechanic to get parts for it, to begin to order parts for this motorcycle. And they register the serial number on the motorcycle into their computer system. And they begin to order parts. Well, the next afternoon, this kid in his dorm room, his phone rings. And he picks up the phone and and. The voice on the other end says, hi, can I speak to, fill in the blank of his name, whatever his name was. I'm sure my grandfather had a very clever name for him. Fill in the blank with the name. And he said, um, the voice on the other end says, hey, uh, my name is Jay Leno, and I do a show on television. And I, would, uh, I heard you purchased a motorcycle yesterday. And remember, my grandfather's telling this as if it's true. And to be honest with you, I, I, think, it, I think it was. I just trust my grandfather. So <clears throat> he says, my name is Jay Leno, and I heard you purchased a motorcycle yesterday. And this young man says, A, I did purchase a motorcycle yesterday. B, this is not Jay Leno, and hung up the phone. Phone rings again, picks up the phone. Jay, <laughs> yes, it's me again. I don't believe you. All right, all right, all right, I get it. Do me a favor, watch my show tomorrow night, and, and maybe I'll help you, you know, believe that this is actually me. 
So the kid next night in his dorm room turns on the Jay Leno show and watches it from start to finish. And there's nothing abnormal, nothing interesting, nothing different, nothing that would make him believe it was actually Jay Leno on the phone until the very end of the show. And Jay's doing his sign off and he says, hope you enjoyed the show tonight. We have a great show tomorrow night. And by the way, to that kid in Tennessee, that really was me on the phone yesterday. The kid thinks, oh, no. (laughs) Next day, phone rings, picks it up. Hello, this is Jay Leno. I believe you now. He says, I heard you purchased a motorcycle. I did. He said, I'll give you $5,000 cash for it. He says, what? He said, How about $7,500? Uh, I mean, I don't even know what you're talking about. How about $10,000? I'll give you $10,000 cash for that motorcycle. And the kid says, you literally will give me $10,000 cash for this motorcycle? He says, yeah, it's my final offer, $10,000 cash. He says, all right, I'll take it, $10,000 cash. And Jay says, within two hours, there will be a truck outside your dorm room with a couple of guys that will take that motorcycle off your hands. They'll load it on the truck. You'll sign all the paperwork, give you the cash in your hand, and you'll be done with it, and it'll be over, and you'll have your next semester worth of school paid for. So sure enough, two hours go by, and then there's a truck out front, and he signs all the paperwork, cash exchanges, hand, changes hands. He walks away with $10,000 cash, and just as about the truck is about to f- pull away, Jay Leno calls again. Ring, ring, picks up the phone. Hello, this is Jay, I figured. And he, Jay says, hey, uh, all the money changed hands. Yeah, yeah, all the, all the paperwork signed. Yeah, it's a done deal. It's over. The motorcycle's yours. I've got the cash in hand. I sign all the paperwork. And the kid says, why, why in the world would you want an old, beat-up motorcycle for no apparent reason? Like, this thing is just an absolute. You haven't even seen this thing. It's an absolute. It's just, it's just, it's just a mess. It's crumbled. And Jay says, look, here's the deal in life. It's not about what's on the outside. It's what's on the inside that counts. It's not about what's on the outside. It's not about what you can see. It's what's on the inside that counts. And the kid says, well, I don't even know what that means. Like, what what does that even mean? He said, do me a favor. Hop up on the back of that flatbed pickup where they've got the motorcycle, and there's a latch on the seat. He says, all right. So he says, now undo that latch. And he undoes the latch. And he says, now lift up the seat. He lifts up the seat. He says, can you see a little placard there with some engraving on it? He says, yeah, I can see it, but it's difficult to read. He says, that's ah, pretty dirty, eh? He says, yeah, it's dirty. So he wipes it off. And he says, I want, Jay says, I want you to read that out loud to me. And he says, all right, here's what it says. Happy birthday, Priscilla. Love, Elvis. He says, young man, it's not about what's on the outside. It's what's on the inside that counts. (laughs) Jay Leno was wrong about a lot of things, but in this particular case, he's right. (laughs) It's not about what's on the outside. It's what's on the inside that counts. As we take a look at this passage in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23, this is what Paul is telling us today. It's not about what's on the outside. When it comes to your faith, when it comes to your connection with Jesus, it's not about what's on the outside. It's not about how you look. It's not about your behavior. It's what's on the inside that counts. And by way of introduction here, I need to catch all of us up to speed. If you're joining us for the first time, you picked a great Sunday because th- this is a really critical, uh, is, you picked a great Sunday because we've got to do a little bit of a review here to ramp us into the passage. Remember that the ancient city of Colossae was located in modern day Turkey. It was cosmopolitan, it was multi-ethnic, it was affluent, and it was growing in influence. And a man named Epaphras lived in Colossae, but on one occasion he journeyed to a city called Ephesus. He may have been there on vacation, he may have been there on 
around work. We don't really know, but he was there. And while he was there, Epaphras was in Ephesus from his hometown of Colossae. He ran into a young preacher named Paul. We know him today as St. Paul or the Apostle Paul or the guy who wrote 70% of the New Testament, but back then he was just Paul. And Paul and his buddy Timothy were preaching at this city called Ephesus while Epaphras was there. And when Epaphras heard the good news about Jesus, he responded to the invitation, said yes to Jesus, and repented and trusted Christ. So eventually, a new Christian now, Epaphras heads back to his hometown of Colossae, and he begins to share this good news about Jesus. And before long, there was a group of brand new Christians meeting in Colossae and worshiping together a lot like we're doing this morning. But remember, these are brand new Christians. Not only that... Access to Jesus' teaching was pretty limited at this point. Much of the New Testament hadn't been written, and that which had been written, they didn't have a ton of access to. Literacy was limited. So, So here's what was happening in the early church. Confusion about truth was pretty common. It was, it was not abnormal for the early church to be confused about what was true because they had such limited access to the apostles and to teaching and to scripture and to Jesus' teaching. And, and so here's what is, is happening. There's confusion in the church, and when there's confusion in the church, people just started making stuff up. People just started making stuff up. Do you, do you know anybody like that? When there's like a gap in knowledge or like a lull in conversation, they just make something up. You know what I'm talking about? Like, I'm that guy, by the way. Like, I just throw statistics in there that don't mean anything. Like, 60% of the time, it works all of the time. It's like, well, what does that mean? That doesn't mean anything. I don't even know what that, I don't know what that means, Anchorman. Like, I, have no, I, have, I don't understand what that means. This essentially was what was happening in Colossae when it comes to matters of faith, when it comes to Christianity. There were gaps in information, and somebody just would make something up. And there was a lack of understanding. Somebody just makes something up, and people began to buy it. So they would ask questions like, hey, we have these old religious traditions. Should we continue them? Someone just make something up. Or, or how do we attain spiritual maturity? Someone would just guess and make something up. And rather than consulting scripture, rather than seeking God in prayer, they guessed. Or they just made something up that seemed right to them. Or worse yet, they made something up to kind of suit their own needs. Essentially, here's what we're saying. When it comes to truth, there was a lot of guessing and a lot of confusion going on in Colossae. So, Paul wrote the Colossian Christians a letter. And his goal is to clear up some of the confusion so they wouldn't have to guess. More specifically, Paul recognized that much of the confusion, much of the guessing, and as a result, much of the false teaching, much of the heresy that was going on and being affirmed in Colossae was related to one critical question. It's up here on the screen. Here's the question What is a Christian? What is a Christian? So so when there was a gap in information, when somebody didn't really know the answer to that question, when it seemed unclear, some folks in the Colossian church just began to guess. They they would be asked, what is a Christian? And they would say, well, it's it's primarily about this higher spiritual knowledge. Or what is a Christian? Well, it's primarily about uh, morality, or it's primarily about visions, and they all guessed wrong. And in the passage that we just read, verses 16 through 23, Paul begins to get very, very specific about some of the wrong answers that people suggested in terms of what Christianity is really about. 
In fact, we're going to start right in the middle of that passage. We read the whole thing. We're going to start right in the middle. Colossians chapter 2, if you've got your Bibles, verse 20. Colossians 2, verse 20. There's a Bible in the seat back in front of you. The scripture, as always, is up here on the screen. And in verse 20, Paul, in the middle of that text, now we'll go through the whole thing. We'll unpack the whole thing. But, but look at verse 20. Paul writes this. He says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world. The phrase that I want us to draw our attention to to begin with here because it's a lens through which we're going to understand this entire passage. This is the anchor verse in this paragraph. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of this world. Let's, let's understand exactly what elemental spirits of this world means. Because Paul uses this phrase in verse 20 and in verse 8 and that's the only time in the scripture that this phrase is used. Is used In Greek, it's stoikeion ho cosmos, elemental principles or elemental spirits of this world. So here's what Paul is saying. That word elemental in the original language, again, it's, it's stoikeion, and it refers to the basic principles or the foundational principles that underscore a particular system. So if we think of like the basic principles of math being addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division, or just the numerical system or whatever, those basic principles of math, that's the stoicheon of math. That's the elemental principles or the basic principles of marketing or the basic principles of a, of a good, healthy diet. Whatever it is, it's those basic principles. But, but listen, listen close because this is critical. The other kind of implication here for stoicheon, the stoicheon also was used, the elemental spirits is how it's translated. It was used to refer to things or describe things that were put in a particular logical order. Like the alphabet shows up in the same order all the time, right? And if it shows up in a weird order, it was like, and we don't even know what to do with it. It's put in the right order from A to, as we say in the U.S., Z, and as we say here in Canada, Z, right? Or if Roman soldiers were marching in formation and they were in a logical order, they would be described as a stoicheon because they were in logical order. So typically, we like things that are in logical order, don't we? We like things to be put together, but Paul's not using this word positively here. He's using it negatively because here's what's happening. He uses the phrase because some of the Colossian Christians began to affirm and teach that putting external things in order was superior to an internal world. They were focused on getting their behavior they're getting their kind of their external ducks in a row, so to speak. Let's put our external stuff in order. Let's get that all put together. And we're not going to really pay attention to what's going on inside. In other words, we're going we're gonna to use the outside things, the external things, the behavior things. That's the trump card. That's the stuff we're focusing on and not the internal stuff. And let me just stop here and say, just kind of spiritually speaking, this is us, isn't it? It's far easier to focus on behaviors on the outside than it is to allow God to deal with our heart, attitudes, and thoughts. It's far easier to say, you know what, I, I've never committed adultery. But what about the lust that's in our heart, Jesus says? Or I've never murdered anybody. It's far, it's far more important, to not even more important, it's if you've never murdered anybody, that's a good thing, all right? So 
Jesus says, what, what, what about the hate and the anger that you harbor towards your brother in your heart? And we could say stuff like, you know what, I've never bowed to a golden calf. I don't have idols. I've never bowed to a golden, ca- golden calf. But what about the idols of money or of self that we hold in our heart? It's far easier to look at those external things than it is the internal things. And the same was true in Colossae. In the Colossian church, when there was a gap in information, especially when it relates to this question, what is a Christian, they were guessing that it was about external stuff, putting things on the outside in a row, getting their behaviors all put together. And in verse 16, the beginning of our passage, Paul starts to talk about some of the specific things that the Colossian Christians were focusing on in terms of external behavior. So look at verse 16. Paul writes this, he says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink. We're already seeing some of the external things they were focusing on. Or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Stop there. There's a group of Christians in Colossae that had converted from Judaism. And they had taken a bunch of the old Judaic principles, the old Hebrew principles of their faith, and they had imported them into Christianity. Now, for our friends here that that maybe come from a Jewish background or you're Jewish, I want you to know that, that these folks, the New Testament doesn't even call them Jews. It calls them Judaizers because they had so radically warped uh, Old Testament Judaism. They had so radically shifted that stuff around. They didn't even really look like Jews anymore. And they didn't even really look like Christians anymore. But some of the things that they brought with them, some of the things that they were focusing on in terms of external stuff was, was what, what, what do you eat? What do you drink? And on what days do you worship? A new moon, a festival, a Sabbath. You got to make sure you're in temple. You got to make sure that you're in synagogue. You got to make sure you jump through these hoops and do these external things. Paul comes along and says, no, 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 no. Being a Christian is not about that, Judaizers. It's not about abstaining from some food or drink. That's not what makes a Christian. It's, it's, it's not about worshiping at the right time or in the right way. That's a bad guess. You took a guess and you got it wrong. You're focusing on the external. Look at verse 17. Paul says, these things are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. This is a teaching throughout the Old Testament. This is what Paul talks about when he talks about the Old Testament law. He says, the Old Testament was was kind of a, a framework. It was a context, and it was meant to prepare us for what God eventually brought to us in Jesus. It wasn't the real thing. It was preparing us for the real thing. It was a reflection. It was a shadow. It was a precursor for Jesus. It's not the real thing. You're acting like it's the real thing, but it's not the real thing. It's a shadow. The substance belongs to Christ. By way of illustration, let me put it this way. Amy and I went to Disneyland eight, nine, ten years ago. Okay, And when you go to Disneyland in Anaheim, California, you have to park in like New Mexico. And then... And then they put you on a tram, and then they drive you like 35 hours into, you know, Disneyland. And we're on this tram, and there's this little girl who's like, you know, three, and it was pretty clearly her first time to Disneyland. And she was dressed like Cinderella. She had the little Cinderella wand and the little Cinderella crown and the Cinderella dress. How many of you, you you're thinking, I, that was me when I was three years old? Good. Glad you admit it. Okay, so... So this little girl is on the tram, and there's Disney characters on the tram, and she thinks this is a Disneyland ride, this tram. And I'm like, look, we're still in New Mexico, kid. We got a long 
way to go. But she was fired up. And, like, then I thought it was, like, super annoying, right? Because I didn't have kids. I'm like, come on, shut your kid up. You know, now it's like I can't wait for Kaya to do that. You know, so that's beside the point. That's not even in my notes, okay? That's beside the point. The point is that I'm looking at this kid and I'm going, look, this isn't Disneyland. This is pointing us to Disneyland. This is getting us to Disneyland. This is preparing us for Disneyland, but it's not Disneyland. Like I was telling Amy, I was like, let's follow that little girl because I think she's just going to come apart when she actually walks into the, like I, I just physically, I don't know that she's able to, I think she's going to pass out, right? So, oh, it's Disneyland. She was so excited about the tramp. So like a kid on a tram ride to Disneyland, here's what Paul is saying about those Old Testament laws and regulations. They're not the real thing. They point us to the real thing, but the substance belongs to Christ. He's the real thing. Look at verse 18. Paul says this, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, Puffed up, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Stop there. So you've got this one group of people in Colossae that are saying, what is a Christian? Here's their guess. It's about new moons and Sabbaths and festivals. It's about what you eat or what you drink, what you don't eat, what you don't drink. That's what it's about. Now you've got this other group of folks that are saying, what is a Christian? Well, it's about asceticism. That's like really strict self-control. Or it's about worship of angels. Check this out. This is what people in Colossae were actually arguing. Listen, God is too great. I'm just too small to approach God. I'm too small to pray to God. I'm too small to have a relationship with God. God is just too great. And so there are these lesser gods that, that, that I use as intermediaries between me and God. I worship angels. I don't, I don't, I don't worship the holy, the big God. And, 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 and it was a little bit of a false humility because remember Jesus came along and says, I will get you to the Father. I am what? The way. So there was a false humility. These guys said, well, we're, we're worshiping angels. We don't really worship God. We, we, we worship angels. They're people, or they're, they're beings in between us and God. Or going on in detail about visions. They're talking about supernatural spiritual encounters that they're having. And they're saying, look, Christianity, what is a Christian? It's someone who practices asceticism, strict self-control. It's someone who worships angels and doesn't worship God because he's just too big and he's too great. And it's someone who has supernatural spiritual experience. That's what a Christian is. And Paul says, no, 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 no. That's bad guess number two. Those things create or produce produce a puffed up mind is what Paul says puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind those things produce arrogance not only that look at verse 19 and not holding fast to the head that means that those things those visions those those the asceticism that strict self-control not only produce a puffed up mind but it disconnects us from Christ not connected, not holding fast to the head. What else? And from the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. So not only do these things produce arrogance, but they disconnect us from Christ and they disconnect us from one another. These external things that you're focusing on. Verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world. There it is. You died to putting on the external. Not only did you leave that behind, you're actually dead to it. Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Paul says, why are you still striving? 
Why are you still working hard to make sure all your external ducks in a row? Why are you still working hard to fix the outside? Verse 21, he gives us a couple of examples. He says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. I want you to know that verse 21, as kind of the grammar in the original language, it's a little bit difficult to understand as we read it in English. But I want you to know, everybody look at me. Paul is not saying to them, don't handle those things, don't taste those things, don't touch those things. These are not imperatives or commandments. They're examples of this asceticism, this strict self-control. He's saying, look, those are worldly regulations. Those are human regulations that you're placing on yourself. Don't taste, don't touch, hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. You're concentrating on the external stuff, the behavior stuff. The elemental spirits of the world, 22, verse 22, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teaching. So Paul is saying that concentrating on the external is not from God. Who's it from? It's from humans. It, it's, it's just, it's just you know, basic stuff. It's not God stuff, the external stuff. So Paul says this. Now that we are in Christ, now that we've been baptized with him in his death and resurrected with him in new life, not baptized by water, but baptized by the Spirit, now that we are risen to new life in Christ, the end game for the Christian, everybody look now, this is critical, the end game for the Christian is not to make your list of things that you do right and the things that you avoid that are wrong, not to make those lists longer. That's not the end game for the Christian. The goal, God's goal for you, is not that you would be able to list, like, you know what, I basically just go through the scripture and I make sure I'm obeying all the rules. And all the things God says not to do, I, then I, do, I don't do all of those things too. I avoid those things. That's not God's end game. Here's God's end game. The transforming power of Christ is at work in me every day. That's God's end game for you. Christ is alive in me. He's living his life in me. I'm risen to new life in him, and it changes me. I'm focused on the internal, not on the external. Let's finish the passage, and then we'll apply it. Verse 23. Paul finishes with a few consequences. If we're focused on the external, if we're working on behavior modification, here's what Paul says will happen. He says, these indeed have an appearance of wisdom. They're not actually wisdom, but they look like it. They look pretty good. Don't you think? When people are doing all the right things and they avoid all the wrong things, they look pretty good. It's an appearance of wisdom. It's self-made religion, he says, and asceticism and severities of the body, but they are of no value in stopping indulgence to the flesh. That's very interesting. When we focus on external stuff, did you understand this? When we, when, we, when we pursue behavior modification in order to avoid sin, do you know it drives us directly to the thing that we're trying to avoid? They are of no value in stopping indulgence to the flesh, is what Paul says. Look up here on the screen. This is what, this is what the consequences are of behavior modification focusing on the external and not the internal. First of all, Paul says that those external things, they're not the real thing. In verse 17, he says they're just a shadow. Remember? They're just a reflection. Jesus is the real thing. The substance belongs to Christ. But those external things aren't the real thing. Number two, he says that it promotes pride. It gives you a puffed up mind. You ever feel that way? I feel that way sometimes. Like, man, I, 
It's like what we just saying, you know, when I'm doing well, help me to never seek a crown, right? Sometimes I'm doing well, I'm obeying all the things, and I'm like, wow, Luke, great job. <laughs> that's, that's, that's not biblical. That's not biblical. I'm just telling you that's, that's a sin when I do that. It's when you do it too. And I'm assuming if I do it, then you do it too, all right? It promotes pride. Pat us on the back, pat ourselves on the back for, for doing all the things God said. How about this? Paul says, focusing on the external things disconnect us from Christ and from one another. You know how it does that? Because it says, I I can rely on me to obey all of God's commandments, and I can do it. I don't need Jesus. And it disconnects us from Christ. It disconnects us from one another, too. It disconnects us from the body, according to verse 19. And they don't promote righteousness. They are of no value, just strict self-control, abstaining from particular food or drink. Make sure you worship on the right days. Make sure you buckle down and do it. Make sure you focus on all the behavior modification things, the external things. It's not going to help you promote righteousness. Paul says this, stop judging yourself, stop judging others, and don't let anyone judge you based on external behaviors, based on behavior modification. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, you know what, Pastor, here's the deal. I don't hear anyone talking about angel worship these days. I don't hear people talking about that very much. I don't hear people talking about asceticism or visions. I don't hear people talking very much about specific religious diets. Like, we don't walk around asking one another, do you eat anything that has a cloven hoof, a cleft hoof today? We don't, we, don't, we don't ask ourselves those questions. I don't hear people talking about the Old Testament law. We, I mean, we don't, we don't walk into church and go, I like your shirt. Cotton poly blend. You know, you're disobeying Leviticus 19.19 19 directly when you wear that. It looks good, but it's disobedient. Like, we don't, we don't, we don't say that these days, right? We, you know, but, but listen, this is the principle. The Colossian church was focused on external stuff. And we have our own little list of external things, don't we? We have our own little list of things that we expect a Christian to do and that we judge other Christians based on how they look and based on how they behave and based on how they talk and based on how they act. And I want to share a couple of them with you. Can I? Share a couple of them with you. You you might come up with your own, but here's a couple that I just jotted down. And together, hopefully, we can kind of keep our eye out. In our own lives, not in others' lives, (laughs) but in our own lives, So we don't get caught judging people based on appearance, judging people on behaviors that the Bible doesn't actually talk about and actually command us to do. So we don't get caught in thinking that the answer to what is a Christian is external stuff and behavior modification. Here's a couple examples. I'll start with the easy ones. And we're going to get harder. (laughs) Baptism. Baptism. Baptism is commanded by the scripture for those who have come to new life in Christ. It's a public declaration of an internal reality, but I want you to know that it is not a prerequisite for salvation. If someone has not been baptized, they're not immediately going to hell. You know how I know that? Because when the thief on the cross said to Jesus, just remember me when you're in your kingdom, and Jesus says, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise, just as long as they can get this baptism tank over here as quickly as possible, so we can get you dunked. Like, that's how I know that. Is it a commandment of the scripture? 
yes. If you know Jesus personally, should you make a public declaration and a symbolic act? Sure. But it's an external thing. How about what day you worship on? You know those denominations out there that say you have to worship on this specific day? Don't you know the Bible doesn't say that? How about, uh, how about worship experiences? We ever, we ever look at people and we make a determination on how connected they are to Christ based on the way they express themselves or don't express themselves in worship? You ever do that? Like you see, you know, see somebody singing in church. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'm the only one that does this, but I'm assuming there's at least one, one other, right? You see somebody in church. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice. It's like, oh, they're waving their hand. They must be really connected to Jesus. Paul would come in and say, look, those are external things. Or, or what if somebody is, is, is seated and they're quiet before the Lord and they're just reflecting? I mean, there have been times I just well, I'll just confess to you that I would look and I would say, you know what, I, I, are they really connecting with God? Are they really walking with Jesus based on that posture? And some of you are going, oh, wow, judgmental. Yeah, it is. And this is what Paul is telling us to stop doing. And, and please understand that you're the same way. Just want you to know. We're all in this boat together. How, how about this one? This will be a fun one to talk about. How about alcohol? How about alcohol consumption? We make judgments based on whether somebody consumes alcohol or and we make judgment or, or they don't. Do or don't. And, and like if they don't consume it, they must be a great Christian. And if they do, they must be a total mess. Okay, so here's the deal. Here's what the Bible says about alcohol. If you are not of age, it's a sin. Why? Because 1 Peter 2 says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. Every authority instituted among men. Okay, that's number one. And if you drink to the point of drunkenness, that's a sin. Because Paul says in Ephesians, don't be drunk on wine, but be controlled by the Spirit. And Sometimes people drink to the point at which they are controlled by something that is not the capital S spirit. They're controlled by a lowercase s spirit. You understand what I'm saying? Like gin and tonic spirit, okay? And I'm just, I'll just, I'm just be real straight with you. Like, I, I, I've, I've told you from the beginning, we're just have honest conversations in here about this stuff. Now, some of us in this place or some of us outside of this place can't consume alcohol at all can't like drink wine at all because we can't have one and be done like we have seven teen and you know that's that's what paul says that don't get drunk on wine if you've had 17 you're probably past that point okay and so you abstain from it completely and that's good you should keep doing that but what paul is saying don't pass judgments on people as to whether or not he literally says that in regards to what food or drink it's right there when Jesus uh, did his first miracle, everybody knows what it was, right? Turned water into wine. You know how many gallons? 180. Go back and do the math. It's there. It's, it tells us. Ceremonial washing jugs, six of them, 30 gallons apiece. 180 gallons worth of wine. And, and it was the best wine they'd had for a week. They were partying for a week at this wedding. Like, and, you know, Baptists. This is where I grew up, Baptists. You know what? It really wasn't wine. It was more of a... It was, more of a, it was more of a juice. Baptists all talk like that, too, by the way, don't they? I'm totally kidding. Some of you grew up Baptists. You're like, that is not funny. I did, too. I grew up Baptist. It's all right. Look, we make decisions about someone's spirituality based on what they 
look like, based on how they behave, based on external stuff. Paul says don't do that. How about how often we're involved in church programs? How about that one? People that are involved, it's like, that person's in 19 Bible studies. They may be, this must be very spiritual. Or, or somebody, somebody just, you know, hey, I worship on Sundays, and, and I spend a lot of time with my family. Like, we say, wow, that person's involved in 19. You should really step it up and make decisions and evaluations and judgments based on external things. How about the way people dress or the way that they look? The way they do their hair, how long it is, how short it is, whether it touches their collar or not. How about tattoos? That's a fun one. Make judgments about people because they have tattoos. I got a friend, I got a friend who's, his body is covered in, in tattoos. Um, and, he, and he shaves his head bald, like, like uh, Telly Savalas. Remember that guy? Like Mr. Clean. Whoop, nothing, nothing, right? No hair at all. He's got tattoos all over his body, all over his neck, all over his hands and arms and stuff. And he always sits in the very front row of church. I think that's funny. He's always up in the very front row. And he has an enormous tattoo on the back of his head that everybody can see. It says, judge not. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a funny joke. Mm. It's a good way to get judged, but it's still funny. We make a judgment based on someone's appearance, whether or not they're connected with Jesus. How about the way people pray? You ever do that? The way people pray. You're, in a, you're, like, you're praying with people and someone begins to pray and they have a lot of these and thou arts and God, you are holy, holy and righteous. And just as it says, Lord, in Psalm chapter 1, which I, of course, have memorized, you know, and then they go on and you think, wow, that, that person must be really spiritual. And then it's time for you to pray and God, uh, I don't know what to say other than thanks. Uh, you're great, you know. And all of a sudden we, we judge ourselves or we judge others or we allow others to judge us. Based. You know what Jesus says about long prayers? You ever heard that? Jesus says don't, don't, don't ramble on and on in your prayers. And don't do it on the corner where everybody can see. Don't be like the Pharisee who goes into the synagogue, goes into the church, and goes into the temple, and he says, God, thank you for not making me like that guy. Don't be like that. Go in your closet. Pray to your heavenly Father in private. Or just because the person quotes Scripture in their prayers doesn't mean they're arrogant. It just means that they've hidden the Word of God in their heart. Like, we make these judgments all the time, whether it's positive or negative. Like, wow, they're really good at praying. I think they've downloaded that from the internet. Like, is there an app or something that they, like, we, we make these determinations all the time. Why don't you just join your heart with them in prayer and not pass judgment? So because we talked about a couple of things, because we talked about a couple of things that tend to be a little bit contentious, church attendance, we talked about that one, alcohol, we talked about this one. I want to be really, really crystal clear. Everybody listen really close. Because I've heard this teaching hijacked and used and abused for people's personal benefit all the time. I hear people do this all the time. So they behave inappropriately. They sin. They reject God's law. They reject uh, God's counsel and the way he says that they should conduct themselves. And you know what? Have you ever heard people say this? Well, God knows my heart. Yes, he does. And that's not always a good thing. They excuse themselves of rotten behavior, and they say, oh, it's okay because my heart is good, and God, and God knows that. I can pretty much behave however I want. 
I want you to know, let's be really clear, that is absolutely not, 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 not what Paul is saying here. Did I say that not enough? That's not what Paul is saying here. The choice not to focus on the external is not a license to stop attending church and going to get hammered and disobeying God. That's not what that is. The choice to focus on the internal is, is a way that we align our hearts and lives with Christ and it effects a change. It makes us different. It makes us more like Jesus. It might cause us to abstain from those things. Did everybody, did everybody catch this in the passage? Catch this. Do you know what Paul, Paul doesn't say? Stop observing the Sabbath. Did you catch that? He didn't say that. He didn't say, uh, don't let anybody pass judgment on you in regards to food or drink. In fact, indulge, you know, just so that God's grace increases. In fact, he says quite the opposite in Romans. That's not what Paul is talking about here. Here's what he's saying. He's answering this question. What does it mean to be a Christian? What is a Christian? This is what Paul is saying. It's not what's on the outside. It's what's on the inside that counts. It's not what's on the outside. It's what's on the inside that counts. If we can get our heads and hearts wrapped around this as individuals and as a church, it would radically change the way we experience Jesus on a day-in, day-out basis. Instead of impressing God with our external behaviors and saying, I abstain from all of these things and I do all these things and I'm puffed up without reason by my sensuous mind, patting myself on the back, disconnecting myself from others, disconnecting myself from Christ. Instead of that, I get my internal world put together. I focus on what's going on inside. And what I mean by that is this. I love Jesus above all things. I firmly locate Jesus as the burning sun at the center of my universe. I establish him as the Lord of my life on the inside. And what happens to those things on the outside? They all just fall right into place. We talked about this from the beginning of the series. When Christ is the burning sun at the center of my universe, all the other planets fall into place. Focusing on the external, it's not going to help you in avoiding and, and stopping the indulgence in the flesh and avoiding sin, Paul says. Focus on the internal. Love Jesus. Exalt Jesus. Get to know Jesus. Glory in Jesus. Enjoy Jesus. And you'll watch those external things just right into place. Practically speaking, how do we do this? Last question. We're just going to zip through it real quick. Somebody asked me this question this week as I was talking about this message with them. Practically speaking, how do you resist the judgment of others and submit and surrender your lives to Christ? We talk about this all the time, but specifically when it comes to resisting the judgment of others, because sometimes people can look at you and say, oh, you have tattoos, or you had a glass of wine, or you, you know, I didn't see you at Bible study this week, or whatever that external thing is. And Paul says, therefore, don't let anybody judge you. So how do I do that? I'm going to give you three steps real quickly. Here we go. Listen, prayerfully consider, and then allow God to convict. That's it. Listen, prayerfully consider, and then allow God to convict. So if someone comes to you and says, I see a behavior in your life that isn't biblical, or, or better yet, I see a behavior in your life, and I really can't point to chapter or verse, but it seems like you probably should stop doing that. Here's what you don't say. You're an idiot, please don't talk to me ever again. That's not, what, that's not how this goes. That's not a gracious attitude. That's not the attitude that Christ would have. You, you know he would, what he would instruct us to do? is just listen. 
and then prayerfully consider, because they might have a point, by the way. There may be an attitude in your heart or a behavior in your life where somebody brings it to you, whether, whether they are a friend or someone that, you're, you know, that you know well or someone that you don't know very well, and you go, you know what, after praying about that and considering that, I think they're right. I think there's something I probably need to choose to abstain from or something that I need to do more of. I think they're, I think they're right. So prayerfully consider what they say. And then the third thing is this, allow God to convict. Here's what that means, that they're not the Holy Spirit in you. The Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit in you. Check this out. The Holy Spirit does the convicting, and the Holy Spirit does a pretty good job at it. Amen? Like, we don't need to be the Holy Spirit. I don't want that job. That's above my pay grade. I'll let the Holy Spirit be the Holy Spirit. Does that mean that I just let people do whatever they want, give them license? Oh, sure, you can do whatever. No, 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 no. That's not what that means. I bring things to people in respect and in the context of relationship and according to biblical principles, but I let the Holy Spirit do the convicting. That's his job, not mine, because it's the internal world, right? It's the Holy Spirit at work in them. It's arranging their internal life that causes things to change on the outside. Allow God to do his convicting work in you if he so chooses to do that. Typically, he does that through his word, the Bible. That's why we need to know it. He does that through our conscience when we do something or, or, or we know the good we should do and we don't do it and we walk away and go, I feel guilty. That's the spirit. It's the spirit. It's a conscience. How about others that you trust? God, God brings things in and around us, inside of us and outside of us that, that he uses to convict, but it's always him that does the convicting and does the changing from the inside out. Therefore, we don't judge others by external things. We don't judge ourselves by external things. We don't allow people to judge us based on external things, based on these hoops that we're jumping through and behavior modification. We just allow Christ to do his transforming work and exert his power in and through us. I'll tell you one story, and then, and then we'll be done. I, I went to Tanzania, uh, Africa, four or five years ago. Uh, some of you are actually from that part of the world. And uh, I, I was in a, I, Amy and I sponsor a couple of children down there, and so we went to visit these kids and visit them in their homes. One of them lives in a primarily uh, Muslim village, and we had a great time there hanging out with this child and the family that we sponsor. And then uh, we were in another village that was primarily Maasai. Do you know what Maasai warriors are? They're an indigenous folk, uh, just a group of people in, um, in Tanzania and Kenya area. It's like what you'd see on the front of National Geographic or something like that with you know, a spear and earrings and, and jewelry and like a big tunic thing. It's very, very cool, very interesting. And I got opportunity to like sit in these little mud huts and, and you know, these kids that are like 12 years old. And I said, why do you carry a spear to school? It's like, well, in case I get attacked by a lion. I'm like, oh, great. I try to keep a little cash in my car in case I need a Gatorade on the commute. So you and I are a little similar in that way, aren't we? Just in case we have a situation, right? So one of the folks that I met there was an individual who was a, a Maasai warrior. He grew up in a Maasai tribe, still a part of a Maasai tribe. And he uh, said yes to Jesus in repentance and faith, and he became a pastor in this Maasai village. And I talked to him a little bit about his background. And interestingly, um, the, the Maasai culture is a polygamist culture. So before he came to Jesus, he had four wives. 
like, I have, I have one, and it's tough, you know, and he had, <laughs> he had four. It's like, wow. And so I, I didn't want to, like, broach the subject with him, right? I didn't want to, like, ask him, like, you know, can, can you introduce me to one or all of them? Uh, you know, I didn't, you know, you don't, you don't have, what you, did you, did you change? I mean, you, you know, it's, it's a tender situation. I didn't know him that well, but I knew this missionary that we were with, and I said, hey, Isaac, what, what's the deal with, with this pastor, man? Does he have four wives? And he said, well, I'll tell you the story. When we first met him, he was obviously Maasai warrior, still is Maasai and lives in Maasai culture and pastors Maasai people. And he had four wives and we shared the gospel with him and he said yes to Jesus in repentance and faith. And then he does, and he did what many brand new Christians do. They begin to tell other people about their newfound faith in Christ. And if you had four wives, who would you go to first to tell them about Jesus? Your wives. And he did. And they all repented and came to Christ and said yes to Jesus. And then all of their children, lots of them. Like I remember, uh, I remember this man asked my mother, uh, how, many, how many grandchildren do you have? And my mom said, at the time it was four. And he said, why, why so few? He had like 90 because he had like nine wives. You know, I mean, it's, it, was a, it, was a, it was a wacky deal. And I said, so, so he, he shared faith with his wives. He shared his faith with his children. They all said yes to Jesus. And then what happened? Well, they do what a lot of Christian families do. They started having devotions together. All the wives and the kids reading the Bible and praying together and talking about it. And I said, this is weird. And he said, yes, I know. And then one day, he came to me and he said, what do you think about kind of my life and my family? He said, well, uh, the Bible says that, that marriage uh, happens between one man and one woman. That's the biblical definition of marriage. Is that the definition that you've got? He says, no, it's one man and four women. He says, that's really what the Bible says. He said, yeah. And so, and so my missionary friend, instead of saying, now you need to change. You need to modify your behavior. You should feel convicted about that and change. Instead of saying that, he just said, that's what the Bible says. So I said, I'm, I'm going to think about that. I'm going to research that. I'm, I'm going to bring that to my wives, and we're going to talk about it and, and, and study the Bible. So they began to study the Bible. And it began to be, become very, very clear to them that the biblical definition of marriage is between one man and one woman. And they wanted to obey God, and they tried to figure out how together. And so what he chose to do was he said, you know what, I made vows, I made a covenant with one woman, and then I made covenants and vows with women after that. So I'm going to retain the first wife that I took. And then the other three I'm going to dismiss and allow and release and allow to go do whatever they would like to do in terms of marrying and having children elsewhere. And everybody together in their family agreed to do that, and those three women um, left that, you know, polygamist relationship in marriage. They all are remarried now to believers, Christians, and they're raising Christian kids. And this friend of mine, the pastor, visits his children and visit, visits his former wives and their new husbands and supports them financially and loves them and they have a great relationship. Now, here's the thing. I would not have been able to figure that out personally. I would not have been able to figure out that solution. When they told me that was the solution, I said, I have, I, I mean, where's that even coming from? Like, 
Like, I, I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't have had any idea how to suggest that, but you know who does have an idea what to suggest there? Jesus, the Spirit of God at work in people. That doesn't mean that my missionary friend said, oh, you do whatever you want to do. That's just, that's just your background. That's just your culture. That's just, you do whatever you want to do. It didn't give him permission to sin and license to sin. He just said, here's what the Bible says, and the Spirit of God convicted. Listen, men and women of God, here's the thing. This is what Paul is saying in, in Colossians, especially in this verse, that if we focus on the external, we're going to disconnect ourselves from Jesus and from others. If we focus on the external, we're going to puff up our minds. If we focus on behavior modification, it's not going to work. He says, if you, if you dig your roots deep into Jesus, if you love Jesus, if you worship Jesus, you're going to watch all of those other things fall into place. And loving Jesus and worshiping Jesus and exalting Jesus above all things results in joyful obedience, not obligatory obedience, but joyful obedience to the commandments of Christ. It makes us more like him. And some of you, I just want to be honest with you, some of you may be living under the heavy burden called behavior modification. You may be living under that burden personally. You you may be placing that burden on others. Some of you may feel like there are people in your life that are placing that burden on you. And I'm not saying, again, please understand, it's like, yeah, they expect me to like obey Jesus. That's ridiculous. No, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that this, that burden of behavior modification, that burden of getting all my external ducks in a row. Here's what God invites us to through Paul and Colossians, to dig your roots into Jesus, to love him, worship him, glory in him, enjoy him. And you'll watch behavior shift and change on the outside to be more in line with what God has taught us in his word and especially in and through his son, Jesus Christ. Pray with me if you would. God, for some of us, this can be scary teaching. For some of us, we might even feel like if if I start to focus on the internal and on loving Jesus, I'm just going to kind of go off the rails and, and, and completely disobey. But God, remind us that you call us into deep relationship with you and that you've given us your commandments for our joy and for our best interest and for your glory. So they're not, they're not heavy, they, they become a joy simply to obey. God, teach us what it means to not judge others based on external appearances. Teach us what it means to not allow others to pass judgment on us in regards to food or drink or Sabbath or holy day or whatever. In regards to external things, teach us, God, to order our internal world and watch it work itself out on the outside. In Christ's name, amen.